special edition of Wrestling with the Future. I am your host, Angelo DeCibio, joined by my co-host. He is the happy haberdasher. He is the smartest man in the room. And I know this because he tells me every week I'm the smartest man in the room. <laughs> Dan, how you doing, brother? Dan, the man Sebastiano. I'm good, Angelo. Looking forward to this conversation. Dan, you uh, you uh, uh, are in a, a a world of hurting tonight. When we get Larry off the phone tonight, there's a gentleman here who has a, a couple of words to speak to you. But I want to introduce that gentleman right now. Larry, this is a man who uh, you may or may not remember. He uh, actually had the pleasure of, uh, well, I'll let him tell you, but he is a, uh, a filmmaker, award-winning filmmaker, uh, documentarian, uh, writer, producer, actor, director. His name, we call him the marvelous one around here. He is Mike Messier. And Mikey, why don't you tell Larry your special connection to him? Well, Larry, you might recall, uh, Mr. Zabisco, that I inducted you into the New England Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame. That was oh, you were the Mike. Our okay. mutual friend, Joseph Bruin. That was yeah. me. That was me. That was for you lucky guy. What year was that? Because that was a while ago. That was 2009, I believe. 2010, Mikey. 2010. Oh, 2010. Yeah, thanks, Andrew. Wow, time flies. How you been, Mike? I've been good, Larry. And that was that was a very special evening for me because um, I had just had a, a car accident uh, a few days earlier. And uh, my friend uh, Vinnie Paz, the boxer, and I escaped life with our lives intact. Oh, and I was able to fulfill my obligation to give uh, what many people say was the greatest induction speech ever in the New, Indi- New England Pro Wrestling ah. Hall of Fame. And <laughs> well, par- yeah. part of that is because they could actually hear what I said because the, the microphone system wasn't working so well. So I screamed everything I said <laughs> so people could hear it. <laughs> well, That's good. Crazy. Well, I'm good. Yeah, great story. Well, I, you know what, Mikey, I told Larry I might have a surprise or two for him tonight. So, that, Larry, I hope I surprised you with Mikey. Yeah, no, that was a good one. I'm trying, I'm trying to go back into the brain cells because you know, I'm trying to remember I'll, that. I'll tell you, it's Mike is a, is a returning member of our family. Uh, we had lost touch with him for a little bit, but he's back. Um, Make a move, this, yeah. he's actually one of the founding members of this podcast way back in the day. Okay, and uh, we have actually spoken about your induction into the New England Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame previously. But yeah. for people who are the one or two living under a rock who may not know who you are, let me tell everybody who I'm speaking to Larry Zabisco is a semi retired American pro wrestler and author. And perhaps is best known for his feud with his mentor, Bruno Sammartino, during the early 1980s. Among other accolades, he is a two-time world heavyweight champion, having twice held the AWA championship, a title that he retired. He took it with him. Zabisco was inducted yeah. into the WWE Hall of Fame. March 28, 2015, by his mentor, Bruno Sammartino. And Zabisco was also inducted into the New England Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame by our very own Mike Messier. Welcome to the show, Larry Zabisco. Larry, my friend, my buddy, welcome. 
Well, thank you, Ange. Yeah, good gimmick. I'm glad. Yeah, but uh, memories of Mike, that was a great honor. And that was um, kind of, I, I, I can't complain. I, I, I've had a pretty uh, abnormal, uh, you know, fun, uh, different life. <laughs> well, it was a great well, night for everybody. Let's talk about England. that for a second, Larry. How does a young Lawrence Whistler become Larry Zabisco? Um, well, it was just, you know what, there's, if you pay attention to reality and kind of go into a higher dimension, because right now we're in the iron age where we're the densest, but it was just a dream that was meant to be. And I'll give you a couple of really goosebump things here in a nutshell. But, uh, you know, I, I moved to Pittsburgh when I was 12. First time I saw wrestling and make a long story short, Bruno became my hero. And from the age of 13, I wanted to be like Bruno. I mean, a hero, a good guy it, you know, inside of me, like all human beings, we hate injustice. We hate bad guys. We hate criminal murderers. We want to, you know, hang them and, you know, so I was a big Bruno fan and wanted to be like Bruno. And at the age of like 13, my parents dragged me off to church one Sunday and I'm sitting in a pew in this little church called St. Sebastian. And I'm sitting there and the communion came and I didn't really want to go, but I'm sitting there and I look next to me and here's this big broken nose, his perfect broken nose, his big head, these big cauliflowered ears. And I go, holy crap, I'm sitting next to Bruno. I'm thinking this, I'm sitting right next to my hero in church when I was 13 years old in St. Sebastian's. Wow. And I chased him out after, well, we didn't wait to hear the ending. So I chased him out of the church afterwards with his Sunday program and asked for his autograph and he was nice, and that was great. Three years later, when I got my driver's license, I was 16, I found out where he lived, which was like a couple miles from my house. And sometimes I'd go out of my way a block or two and drive by his house just to see if I could catch a glimpse of him. And one day in the summer, I drove by, and it was hard to see in his backyard because there was these big row of hedges. But I caught a glimpse of him standing out by his pool getting a suntan. And I couldn't help it. I stopped the car and crawled through the hedges and emerged. You know, Bruno's looking at me, and I got thorns and bushes and leaves hanging all over me. And I introduced myself to him in his backyard and was very respectful and nice and just overwhelmed by in person. I mean, because he was a gorilla, you know. In his oh, God, prime, yeah, he was like sure. 270, 75 pounds. Probably. I mean, and, and he was my hero and a good guy. Everybody loved him. And uh, the rest is history. He became my mentor, and we had a, kind of a falling out, sort of an identity crisis when I was young, trying to get a break. But the rest became history. And But the weirdest part was at the very end of this dream I had that came true because now they call me the living legend. Something Bruno started in the days when there was no legends yet, you know, because TV just started in the 50s. And Mm -hmm. by the time the 70s and 80s came, all the old athletes, there was no legends yet. But 
So anyway, it, you know, to, to be inducted in the WWE Hall of Fame by my mentor, by Bruno, after you know being like him was my dream, was like the end of a dream come true story. Yeah. And the final nail on the proverbial coffin that made the whole thing kind of a higher dimensional meant to be thing was, unfortunately, you know, a couple of years ago, Bruno died. And I couldn't believe it. But, you know, I flew out to the funeral in Pittsburgh. And where in the heck do you think the funeral in Bruno's casket was? St. Sebastian. It was in that little church, St. Sebastian. And I was in a row next to a couple WWE people. And Vince was there. It was really cool. Vince could make it. And Stephanie and some people, a bunch of people were there. But it just dawned on me because when I was 13 and the very first place I met him was St. Sebastian's right by the pew. And the very last time I was with him was in the exact same little church, uh, about the same pew um, next to the coffin. It was just too much of a coincidence not to... Absolutely. To mean Larry. something. It, it was just really a higher dimensional kind of dream. Life's a dream. I mean, for us, they scare you with death, but there's no such thing as death for for us. Yeah. We're all divine. Absolutely. You know, and anybody who watches this show will tell you what we fervently believe that here. Uh, I'm more than others because of what I do for a living. Um but, be, but rather than bore you with that, I'm going to actually turn it over. Normally, I would give it to Dan at this point, but I'm going okay, to turn it over to Mike Messier okay. and uh, and let Mikey have at it. Go ahead, Mikey. Okay, well, I'll Larry, make a couple of movie stories. <laughs> <laughs> Larry, um, there's just so much about your career that we could talk about. Of course, everyone talks about the Bruno uh, stories and even the AWA uh, title reign, but you know, one of the first things when I became a, a young wrestling fan was a storyline that you were involved in in the Georgia Championship uh, Wrestling area, where you paid Killer Tim Brooks twenty five thousand yeah. dollars for the Georgia National Title, and uh, yeah. you know, if you advance, yeah, if you, if this storyline predecessed by the way, Ted DiBiase paying Andre the Giant for the WWF title. By about five years, if not more. And uh, so when you paid off Zabisco, I'm sorry, when you, as Larry Zabisco, paid off Killer Tim Brooks for the Georgia national title, uh, the NWA president, Bob Geigel, held up the belt, and then they had a 20-man tournament in the Omni. Can you tell us about that experience, Larry? Because that's a great story in my book. Well, you know what? It it, it is a story, and I was amazed on how many years people talked about that. Uh, because uh, the important thing you know, that, that makes things historic is if it's the first time it's ever done. And that was the first time Paul Orndorff had the belt and I was trying to get it from him, but then Killer Brooks wound up with the match and I pulled the fast one and Killer Brooks, you know, beat, beat Paul Orndorff for the belt with my help. But kind of a setup because then I bought the belt and I was the first guy to ever buy a belt, which really pissed people off. I mean, (laughs) but there was a story that people talked about that for years. 
about that, uh, you know, buying the bell. Yeah, that was a, cla- a classic, you know, cla- a classic, uh, you know, situation for those for those days. And then, then yeah. the follow up to that to get even more heat on Larry's Abisco because this is about three or four years after the Bruno feud. So here you are in Georgia in the South where a guy from, you know, Pittsburgh is probably not going to be well-received anyway. And oh, then, no, they hate him. Well, I'm just saying the Southern, the Southern wrestling fan had no love yeah. for, for the Northeast guy. So then you actually won the tournament to put salt in the wounds for the fans and the Omni. And when I, when I remember Larry is having an inside wrestling magazine, that had the breakdown of that tournament. And it was really like someone put the tournament brackets in a, in a egg blender or something, because you had all these buys and, and, and so forth. Uh, but you ended up uh, winning the tournament. Can you describe that night in the Omni? Because I don't think there's any footage of it available, but I just want to know if yeah, you, you know, remember the tournament. You know, you know what? I hate to sound like a, I'm losing brain cells, but it, it's so many things. And, I'm trying to remember that uh, I really don't remember that I've been in so many, you know, matches, some of them. I, I can't remember to tell you the truth. The only thing I remember about that time is like you mentioned, because I was from the Northeast and now I was in the South. And not only did I piss off the fans, I pissed off the Crockett's, the Southern promoters. And I did an interview because Tommy Rich was there. We we had some good stuff. And I did an interview saying that when I'm done with Tommy Rich, they're going to carve his face on Stone Mountain next to Stonewall Jackson and Robert E. Lee and all all the rest of the great all-time American losers. And I I pissed off the promoters. The Crockett's wanted to fire me. And uh, uh, Dusty Rhodes was there. And the Dusty was the one that stuck up and said, you can't fire him. He gets heat just standing there. People want to kill him, you know. Exactly. But, yeah, it was uh, – but that whole thing was uh, – yeah, that was a classic. Yeah. yeah. That was Dan my – that man? was – Yes, sir. You are up the bat, Dan. Uh, once again, I want to say it's an honor talking to you. Um, you, you mentioned earlier, you talked long, long, last time you were on the show too, we touched on longevity and I remember, I mean, between Baltimore and Jersey and, uh, Norfolk, where I live now traveling and, and seeing you a lot, uh, towards your stint in WCW. And even then yeah, this was the early mid nineties, even then the people booed you because of the living legend moniker and you, you turned on Bruno and people were still mad at you. But then at some point. All of a sudden, Living Legend became a, a nod to the respect the fans had for you. And the same character, the same Larry Zabisco, the same Living Legend yeah. went from you screwed Bruno and Boo to we love this guy because of everything he's done for the business in what well, seemed like a short span. I was wondering if you could have shed any insight to when you you noticed that the fans kind of, well, I don't want to say accepted yeah. you, but. Well, what happened was this. I mean, you know, the hands of time. I was calling myself the living legend back in 1980 when I was, you know, with Bruno, which pissed people off because I was like 27 or so. Obviously, I was no legend. I was an asshole. And they (laughs) believed it. And I called myself the living legend for so long that, you know, Bruno was long retired. And I started getting older. 
and and started growing into the part. So the very early 90s when me and Arn teamed and were the enforcers, the living legends still, you know, got me some heat and all that. But the generations were changing. And then yeah. after I went into the broadcasting, when I went into the broadcasting, I had to soften up the character a little bit because yeah. my job wasn't telling people how great I was. My job was telling people how great everybody else was on TV. So well, then the living Larry, legend that, just, and, I, and then I'm the new world order for, when I, yeah. Sure, interrupt me, Angelo. I'll be rude. No, I, I, I'm the club. Right, but we have a very yeah. special <laughs> phone call coming in, and I want to oh, make sure you can take this call for you. Caller, are you there? I am here. And uh, tell everybody who you are and tell our friend Mr. Zabisco who you are. Well, first off, <clears throat> Angela, I appreciate you having me on. I wanted to call in. Because for about a, a year and a half, one day every week, Larry Zabisco allowed me and took me to Larryland. Holy shit. <laughs> a year and a half. Yep. Larry, do you know who that is? I'm thinking. I'm thinking. Uh, AWA. The mustache. A he was the mustache. AWA. Larry Nelson? Oh, no, how about Ken uh, Resnick? Oh, geez. wait a minute. I know. I know Larry, who you we mean. Sat together, what? We, we sat the together at the gathering last year for three hours signing autographs. <laughs> the, former F, the former FBI agent, Kenny. How you doing, Larry? Exactly. Is this Ken? <laughs> Did I get the yes, name right? Yes, Holy shit! I still got a, I still got brain cells left. <laughs> no, I'm doing, yeah, no, I'm doing great, Ken. How you doing, buddy? Uh, God, man, is, I, I mean, when when I knew I was going to be signing autographs with you at the, at the gathering, I, I I dug out a Tommy Bahama shirt so it, it, to pay homage. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's all I wear in Florida is Florida clothes. <laughs> Gosh, that's funny. But well, I got to tell you, Larry, I, I reached out last night to Ken, and uh, I said, I know you're busy. I know you've got a lot going on, but, it, you know, if you could, like, swing in, you know, hit us up, do like a, you know, uh, a, a, you know a, what we call like a, uh, a phone call run-in, you know, uh, on Larry and just kind of surprise him a little bit, I sure would get a, you know, I, I think you get a kick out of it, and I, and I sure would get a kick out of yeah. it. Yeah, you know, there's one memory of Ken that I'll never get out of my mind because it was one of the biggest pops I ever heard from a crowd. And it was a match. I forget where it was. You know, the place was sold out. And it was a match between me and Backland. And Kenny was, uh, might have did the uh, announcing, you know, I mean, uh, you know, in the ring, you know, at the it, beginning. Because it, it was a life it, it, it was in Winnipeg. What was it in Winnipeg? Oh, Winnipeg. It, it was a match when I had a match with Backlund, and I did something to Backlund, and Backlund fell out of the ring, went backwards, and Ken was sitting in a chair, and Backlund backwarded. You know, he didn't even see Ken. He just fell into, like, Ken's lap in the chair, and they both crashed into the floor, 
and the roof blew off the building <laughs> to see Ken get squashed. <laughs> I never forgot that. Anzo, my my immediate reaction after Larry threw Backlund on on top of me was, geez, for all this time, I thought Larry liked me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I never so forgot that. That was great. Larry says that the, the the place blew the lid off that that sold out building. What was it? Was it uh, was it you falling on your ass, or was it was it Backlund making you fall on your ass? Uh, I, I'm I, I'm guessing, or uh, I'm going to stick with the latter. And all I can say is that that's my story, and I'm sticking to sticking it. Sticking to it. There you go. <laughs> yeah, you tell him. Well, I got to tell him. Larry was always one of my favorite interviews, and he was a great oh, interview. Man. Oh, I, you know what, well, Ken, you. I, I, have to, I concur with that. Larry has uh, been here twice. Uh, it's our second time with Larry. Um, you know, in addition to the fact that I know him, uh, having it on, on the show and seeing that, that other side of our performers that you don't normally get to see was always a treat for our listeners. And one of the things that, uh, that I'm very fortunate is that I have a tremendous amount of goodwill from people in the business, people like you uh, who won't mind doing the favor, uh, you know, and, and giving a call. And I really, I tell you, I, honestly, I really appreciate that. Uh, you don't know how much it means to me and my guys here on the show, to my audience, uh, and we are definitely going to have you on. I know that I, I'll be honest with you, Ken, I haven't even asked you because I know your schedule. I, I follow you. So I see what kind of schedule you keep. Um, but just as soon as your schedule frees up, we got to have you on wrestling with the future. We're, we're, we'll, we'll try and do that. But, uh, Angela, I, I appreciate the invitation and, uh, I, I was happy to do it, uh, because I always, always liked Larry. I, I loved, uh, interviewing him, uh, and Larry will probably remember this, you know, besides the TV, I also worked in the office. So oh, yeah. we would do interviews once a week. I think it was on Tuesdays. And at some point when there'd be a break, Larry would kind of saddle up to me and very quietly go, his favorite line was, you got any scoops? Yeah, <laughs> you remember that? I still say that. I still say that to people because I don't do social media or nothing, so I got to ask people. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he'd always come up to me and go, "You got any scoops?" <laughs> oh well, God, you yeah. brother! I I I owe you huge. Uh, thank you, Ken Resnick, for joining us tonight. Yes. I really appreciate it, and. No. Uh, no if, if we necessary. if we do get a chance, if we do get a chance to bring you here, I, I would love to have you on. Honestly, no, no, no necessary. Uh, again, I, I I was glad to do it. Uh, I I always from the first time I met him, um, you know, Larry was so different in person, you know, behind the scenes than than his persona, uh, and truly, still, you know, he. He has a nickname, the living legend, but he, he, he's living and he is absolutely one of the great legends of pro wrestling. And, um, uh, I, well, I'm thanks, proud to, 
I'm proud to to say I, I know him and um, I, I hope I'm not overreaching and I'm proud to say I can call him a friend. Well, yes, well, you can. That, I, thank thank you, you very much. Ken, it was great talking to you, brother. Great, great talking to you. In fact, uh, uh, maybe Angelo will, you know, do it uh, uh, texting. But uh, if it's okay, Angelo, uh, if it's okay with Larry, uh, give him, give me, you know, his number, Larry, so we can at least stay in touch. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Give, give my number, or text the number, or something. Oh, absolutely. I'll, I'll hook you up, Kenny. Uh, all right, Larry. Listen, you're. You're one of the all-time greats. Uh, I love the the chance uh, we spent in Charlotte last year at the gathering, and uh, can't stress enough. I I really hope our paths cross again uh, once conventions and and the world kind of gets back to some normalcy. Yeah, me too. I hope so. And in the meantime, you take care, Ken, and hopefully uh, we'll be back to normal soon. Hi, Larry. You take care. Much love and respect, my friend. Thank you, Ken. Appreciate it. Ken Resnick, everybody. That was He was a good guy. He was a good guy, Ken. Yeah, I reached out to him last night, Larry. I said, do me a favor. I said, you know, not for nothing, but, you know, I know you don't do a lot of these kind of things, but do a run-in on Larry. I said, I got Larry on the show tomorrow night. I said, he'd get a kick out of it. So, and he said, yeah, sure. Oh, yeah, I did and it brought back a memory I'll never, I mean, there's some memories you never forget, but the time Backlund fell on Ken and they both got squashed and Ken got that, squashed I under him, the crowd blew the roof off. It was great. I'll tell you, well, just the visual of that is funny. Just <laughs> oh, yeah, I mean, it was great. Dan, I think uh, you were up, and I, I believe I interrupted you, Dan. Uh, uh, forgive me, it's not like you. Never, never, never. Well, keeping uh, up. Uh, keeping with the the what we were talking about, you he Ken mentioned something. He, obviously, you called yourself the living legend. I'm curious. It, it, you you talked about how the moniker evolved and and you know over time when you transitioned. Did you ever think of changing that at any point, or was that kind of just something you kept as an homage and it just kind of became to define you? No, you know, I never thought of changing it because I melted for almost 20 years. I mean, you know, the living legend and the, and the fans, you know, so it just it just became a thing. I melted for 20 years. When me and Arn first got together as the enforcers, the Crockett's wanted to call me the cruncher, but I said, no, oh, I don't want to be the cruncher. No, I wouldn't forget that shit. And then they Who did the dangerous alliance. I don't know. And then the Dangerous Alliance came together, but I didn't want to be a part of a group. So to make a long story short, I said to TBS, oh, my knee, I need a scope. I tore a cartilage. So then uh, I was sitting home rehabbing, you know, my knee. And they called me up one day, one of the producers, and said, hey, can you come down and do a couple of uh, voiceovers? Because Jesse the Body Ventura, you know, was doing, but he quit. So I said, okay, I'll come down and do a couple. So I went down and did a couple of voiceovers, like 1991 or whatever it was. And these guys came running in the room and said, you're the greatest guy we ever heard. And that was the time they started giving all the money away for nothing, you know. Yeah, right. <laughs> and 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 they they gave me this big offer. We, we, would, you, would you become a commentator and we'll pay you this much a year and you only got to work like a day a week? I mean, you got to be shitting. So... 
So I became the announcer, and then the living yeah. legend just kind of stuck, but then the character got, and as I got older, it fit me, you know, the Bruno generation kind of died away, and I yeah. caught, you know, two or three more younger generations because I was on TV another 10 years with the broadcasting. Yeah. Keeping keeping with that, I'm curious, a quick follow-up. As the commentator, your evolution of the hero of WCW against the NWO, which you had started to touch on before we had the call-in, was there ever discussion as you're, you, you spent so much time as such a good heel of having you be like the heel commentator for the NWO instead of the hero that was against them? No, you know, no, that, that never came up because when I did it, it, like I said, it was maybe 1991 or early 19, you know, 92, somewhere around there. So the new world order didn't start till like 96 or 97. So, so there was no talk of, you know, being a, a heel and you really couldn't be a good heel broadcaster because your job was to make the guys in the ring look like stars. So if I was a heel, I'd have to knock everybody. Oh, this guy thinks he's, he really sucks. Don't buy tickets to see him. So anyway, so, you know, I kind of softened up my character. So then people right. started liking me more and more because my job was to put over the, the newer guys, you know. The, so. Larry, so it kind of worked out good. You know? Yeah, I think it worked out pretty good for you. Um, yeah, I lucked out. <laughs> early on in your career, you know, you were so heavily associated with Bruno that it must have been at some point, you know, with shoot or work, you know, it must have been, you know, kind of stifling for you. You know, you, you, you're here, you know, you're obviously grateful to him. He gets you started. You know, you have a career because of him, but how much legit did you want to, you know, create your own identity, your own niche? And how difficult was it or could it have been without Bruno's help? Well, you know what? It, it, without Bruno's help, I, I may have never gotten a big break or maybe never even have gotten in the business because back when I was getting, you know, wanted to get in the business, you're talking early seventies, there were the days of the territories going strong and, and you didn't have that many professional wrestlers. I mean, I couldn't think about it, but you had guys and you had territory. So guys would be in a territory for six months or so, but then they'd leave because people would see them too much and they become yeah. old news. So they'd go to a different territory and be fresh. And the guys from the different territory would come back to the W and they'd be fresh, you know? So people, guys kept moving around and there wasn't a lot of guys and they didn't want anybody in the business. It was a very closed kind of secret brotherhood yeah. because in those days there was no contracts. If you, if you didn't sell tickets, you didn't eat. Well, you know, like that's a really good segue. That's a really, really good point to ask you a question about. Uh, Dan and I have had the opportunity to interview people like Manny Fernandez, Scott Casey, Johnny Mantell, guys who, who made their living in that loop, that Southwest loop. Um, and through, you know, um, Texas, Arizona, New Mexico, you know, yeah. that, that whole bit down there. 
and and they made a living in that area because the territories were you know expansive. I mean, Texas alone had seven or eight. Oh, that was like its own territories. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so you could. Yeah, I never went there. So how difficult? Because Dan and I have had this conversation on the show before, and maybe I'll I'll throw it over to Dan. Then Mikey could jump in here. But how difficult was? And you guys, you mentioned something critical: no contracts. You guys were working for twenty-five bucks, fifty bucks, or whatever it was. Yeah, you had to yeah. work seven nights a week. You know, were they the proverbial Dan? What was it? Twice on Saturday, yeah. twice on Sunday, right? Sometimes, yeah. Sometimes, yeah. yeah. And so, how did you? How were guys able to buy cars? And buy houses and well, put money away for a retirement. Well, I tell you what, I mean, generate, wait, I mean the, the point, no, no, I'm sorry, but the point I'm making is your generation yeah. of wrestler actually was able to do that. They were able to buy cars and buy houses. And oh put yeah, money. yeah. You got guys well, the, with downside <laughs> guarantees of 150 thousand who can't save a dime. Yeah, well, you know, it was different in those days because, again, back in the early 70s, 70s, I mean, when you went to territories, you did things where you'd take a guy or two with you and everybody would pitch in for the expense, and then one guy would get a motel, but, you know, another guy or two guys would come in the room and you'd throw a mattress on the floor, so there'd be three guys in the room, but only one guy paid for it, so they split that. And then, like in, in in when the cars were made, even the you know the, I mean, you could buy a brand new Cadillac for five grand, and if you were making you know four hundred bucks a week, that was decent money back in the seventies. Yeah, sure was. You know, four or five hundred bucks a week, but they used to do tricks like they'd get a Cadillac and then put like a, a two thousand miles on it, and then they'd unscrew. Cause it would just screw in, you know, to the, uh, speedometer, you know, the mileage yeah. indicator. And then you drive the car for two years and you'd have a hundred thousand miles on it. And then you'd screw the thing back in and put another couple. So you'd trade your car in every couple of years that, that would say four or 5,000 miles, but it really had 124,000 <laughs> miles, but it looked like new cause you just drove highways every day. You know, I mean, there was all kind of tricks of the trade they had. But that's why they didn't want you in the business either, because yeah. there wasn't that much money. So there was only, you know, enough money for so many guys. And even sure. back then, like you, the promoters had to pay TV stations to put them on TV. Yeah. It's not well, like I today where about... TV pays you, you know? Yeah. Well, I have questions about that uh, later on in the show, but uh, right now I'm going to throw it to Mikey. And then Mikey, after you're done, then throw it to Dan, because we're gonna. I want to uh, talk about this a little bit. Um, uh, Mikey, why don't you hit the idea of road stories? Well, okay, Larry. Uh, like <laughs> I said, you from the WWF success, the WWF successful run that was huge, and then you uh, went over to uh, Georgia and eventually made your way to the AWA. And you kind of went back and forth. Yep. 
Yeah, you're breaking up on me a bit. I right, bring it up, Mikey. Is Mikey still there? Yeah, he's breaking up. I'll tell you what. Why don't we do this? Uh, uh, Dan, go ahead and pick up on it. <clears throat> uh, we still talking road stories? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. The, um, you, you mentioned, actually, uh, I was going to, I hope I'm not stealing Mikey's question here, but obviously you had your successful run in the Northeast. And we talked earlier, the response you got being a Northeast guy coming down South. I was wondering, how do you, how did that transition go? Cause obviously um, we've had guys on the show. Angela will tell you um, a lot of the road stories are very similar, the highways, the byways, but the, the certain areas driving from territory to territory in Texas was different than driving from say Memphis to Louisville or driving from Baltimore to Philly. Um, yeah. Because just some, some areas are just, it's a different atmosphere. So I was wondering if you have any insight as to how you go about adapting to the road life when everywhere you go is so different. Well, here's the way I adapted to it. I mean, number one, I mean, you know, places like Texas, you know, you'd wrestle one place one night and then the next town would be 400 miles away because Texas was so big. Yeah. Up in the Northeast, you know, you you didn't have that much of a problem. But what I did was I was on the road driving my butt off with a couple guys, you know, for a few years. But then I said, screw this. I couldn't. I became a private pilot. And I start, you know, if I flew little planes, I'd rent a little plane and instead of leaving at one in the afternoon, I'd take off at four and I'd be back at home at midnight when the other guys roll in at four or five in the morning because I'd fly myself or take a guy or two with me. So I flew myself to a lot of towns. But the thing about me that lucked out was because all the, all the publicity came out of New York, you know, the WWWF in those days, yeah. in the 70s and mm-hmm. that. So I never wound up in territories, you know, like Texas and some of those where you, you really drove your ass off for not a lot of money. I lucked out because of the pub where I would go back and forth between the AWA and the NWA and a little bit in Georgia, which was kind of connected to the NWA. So I stayed in the really the three territories that you made the most money in and didn't have the super long, hideous drives that some of the places did, you know. But I solved yeah. it by flying airplanes, which I flew planes, which I loved flying planes. And it was it was great. And that really helped you know, from living in the cars, but, Larry, uh, but I kind of lucked out. Well, yeah, you have your pilot's license for life. Oh, wow. Okay. I, I never knew that. Oh, I mean, if I wanted to fly again, I'd have to take a physical and probably go up because I'm sure all the planes now got completely different, you know, technology equipment than when I used to fly. Now, did you, you own know, your I've own plane or did you rent a craft? No, I just rented one because they were cheaper, and then you could deduct it. But back then, if I want, if I took a guy with me, I'd rent a one fifty for forty bucks an hour. Oh, and wow. if there was two guys with me, I'd rent a one eighty because it had you know more power for more weight. Would be fifty bucks an hour. And nowadays, it's cheaper probably three hundred bucks an hour. Right? Yeah, it and really it's, is. It's cheaper it's a, than driving. Well, we well, got Mike straight line. Mike, Mike is back. You I'm got back frozen the... there, Mike. So uh, yeah. So Dan went ahead and asked the question. So well, go ahead, brother. I hope 
I hope we didn't step on your question. No, that's fine. Um, Larry, I, I was kind of the same. I, I was just cu- curious. You know, Your style was interesting, and that's something that sometimes we don't talk about is different pro wrestlers, especially in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, had different styles. And you, you were the master of the stall before making body contact. You could have the fans uh, hating you, screaming at you, for 15 minutes before you would even touch an opponent. And uh, I, I would imagine that in some respect helped your career with the longevity. What? I, I heard most of that. Are you there? Uh, Mikey's freezing up again. Uh-huh. Wow, bad. <laughs> well, you know what I heard? What, I heard what Mikey said and I got... I mean, here's the thing. I had what the other guys didn't have. I had heat. People really hated me. And the thing that I stole from all the old timers, from Bruno and the chief and Monsoon and guys that would help me out for political reasons, because I was Bruno's buddy, you know, I learned to make the people believe in my character. And no matter what they thought of wrestling, even in the even in the mid '80s, when you'd hear the chance, someone go boring because the guy wasn't doing nothing. You know, oh, yeah. but people believed no matter what about wrestling, they believed Larry Zabisco was a real asshole, and they hated me. And I could get more reaction. I walked into a ring and I would go to tie up, but then I wouldn't. Then I'd argue with the ref, and the guy would come at me, and I put my foot and get on the apron. Then I jumped down and argue with some fat broad you know, who was yelling at me and I'm yelling at her. Hey, if you eat more, you could get fatter, you know, and I'm putting on the show for the people. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, so I got so, but, but, but the whole time, the whole time I was doing this, people are chanting, Larry sucks. Larry sucks. I mean, the place is going berserk. So if I would have started wrestling, you know, grab a headlock or take someone down, the place would have got quiet. So back in those days, it was considered great work. And then when you start getting all these idiots with the cheat sheets and the smart talk, they went, oh, they labeled it. Larry's known for stalling. It wasn't stalling. I had the place going nuts because I had heat. No one else well, yeah, but that anymore. You also, you, because I, I guess because the way you were trained and the guys you worked with. Yeah, I, I, I knew how to work. Well, not only that, but you had something that existed back in the business then that does no longer exist called psychology. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, the there's a psychology. psychology. It doesn't exist <laughs> yeah. anymore. No, it's a, it's kind of a lost art that these guys today don't know. And if you watch, I mean, I, every match, you know, you got to run across the ring into a guy's foot. Everything's just the same. You know, you dive across the ring, and there's three yeah. guys waiting to catch you. Every I mean, we've match is the about same. Larry, it's crazy, brother. We've talked about it before. You know, you got guys where their their opening spot is setting themselves on fire. Well, where do you go from there? <laughs> you know. Well, that's yeah. I mean, a- after everything you saw, what do you got left? Yeah, well, <laughs> but, exactly. Mike, yeah, I'm going to talk to you, baby. Go ahead, Mike. Uh, Larry, you're talking about that Bob, Bob Backlund match. 
I think that might have been for the Americas title, which was the Pro Wrestling USA Championship, that I think you were the only person to ever hold it. And I, I just, it's funny because you, in your career, you had the Americas title, the, the Western States title, and then the AWA title, uh, many, AWA world title. Many times you would kind of retire these titles. But Larry, do you remember anything about that Pro Wrestling USA thing that only lasted about, about a year, a year and a half, when the AWA and the NWA and the territories were trying to team up? And you were the champion yeah. of all of that. You were the Pro Wrestling USA champion. Well- you know what? That's an interesting question, Mike, because because that was a time when the era was already changing. The territories were dying off and going away, and the business was going to a nationwide television and pay-per-view, a new era. And Vince got a big jump on the other promoters because the other promoters, you know, Vern Gagne was older, and the guys out west were older, the Crockers were getting older, and they were all millionaires and happy with their territories, but they didn't see the new era coming like Vince did. So Vince took everybody else's talent, because there was no contracts. He took the Hulk and Bobby Heenan and Mean Gene and Jesse the Body from Vin, I mean, from Vern. And then he took Piper and uh, Randy Savage and other guys from the Crockett's. And then he took Junkyard Dog and other guys from Bill Watts out in Texas and Louisiana. So Vince got, grabbed himself all the top guys from all the territories. So whenever he drew anywhere in the country, because now he's going nationwide, he had their top guys and people knew him. And that's one of the things that gave me a, a, a good chance because the NWA and the AWA always needed somebody. So I always had a place back and forth. So, so that was kind of the, the beginning of, of, of the, the new era that started back then with yeah. the business, you know, territories dying out and the nationwide and the pay-per-view. And now that era is gone and now we're into a new era of a, really, I mean, it's huge. It's a global network era. Mike, can I and, interrupt uh, you for, for just a second and... Because I want to, I want to uh, follow up on Larry. I want to follow up on something that Mikey asked, and I'm going to turn it back over to him. How much do you know about that McMahon buyout of the territories? The the understanding that I got from somebody that was involved in that was that Vince actually offered people uh, money to be a part of his group. To include well, them rather than to to so called buy them out. Do well, you know? Vince. Yeah, I don't think Vince bought anybody. Here's what happened. I mean, the Crockett's mother was the one controlling the Crockett family money, and she finally pulled the strings back, and that's when NWA sold out to Turner and became WCW. We tried to get Vern to close the AWA two years before he did. Because, you know, he, he couldn't do it. But Vince didn't buy the territories or buy anybody out. But he's, he's the one that started the contract. So when he took the talent, they couldn't run back. You know, he caught the other promoters, you know, off guard. And um, 
So well, it, it was what he did was he bought the library of tapes. So he owned all the AWA shows and all the NWA TV shows. And the funny bit was, <clears throat> this is an interesting story because you talk about the AWA and the NWA working together for a year. Yeah. Cause they tried, they tried to work together for a year and so they could compete against, against Vince, who had the big leap on them. And they worked together and ran, they ran the Meadowlands in New York and they ran other clubs, Philadelphia, sure. you know, trying to get in Vince's area and all that stuff. Big and the, the funny, the funny story was, which is really interesting was back at that time, one of their ideas was an invasion idea. And if you remember when it, the wrestling dolls first came out, they had the AWA dolls and the NWA dolls. Yep. Right. There was a AWA doll that came out with me, but they came two in a pack, two guys in each pack. And in my pack wasn't an AWA guy. It was Ric Flair from the NWA. So when you got the Larry Zabisco AWA figure, it came with the Ric Flair NWA figure. And the reason it did that is because there was supposed to be an invasion deal where the AWA was going to start bad mouthing the NWA and the, you know, and, and, and basically invade, you know, the NWA. So, cause they didn't even, they were working with each other all the time. Yeah, And there was supposed to be a big feud with me and Flair going on. That's why they put the dolls in the same pack. But at the last minute, that broke apart that deal because there was too many cooks. The Crockett's and the Ganyas or whatever happened couldn't agree, so it just ended. But that that's why the dolls came out with me and Rick from Tudor because I was going to badmouth him on ESPN, yeah. and he was going to badmouth me on TBS. And then we were going to invade one of their shows and they were going to invade one of our shows. The funny bit is that that very idea that we were going to do back in around 1985, 86 yeah. is the same idea that happened in 1997. It was the same idea and we called it the new world order. Yeah. A lot of people forget that. That's great. That's where it came from. We were supposed to start with me and Rick a long time ago. Yeah. Those the action figures. Okay, Mikey. What? Those, those, Larry, those were the uh, Remco action figures that are still very popular on the trade market. People love those AWA Remcos. And you and Rick were in the same box. You're right. Me and Rick were in the same box because there was supposed to be a big feud that never happened. And then. Because that didn't happen, they made a collector's series with me and Nick Bockwinkle in a package. Because I had a feud with Nick. That that feud. But that whole yeah, you're, you're, but that invasion idea is what became the New World Order ten years later out of the old AWA idea. Yep, sure did. Dan the Man, uh-huh. you have a bunch of action figures behind you. Do you have a Larry Zabisco pop behind you? He actually, oh my God, Larry, he's got the action figure. Are you shitting me? Oh my God. You're you're described as the AWA challenger. Ah. Is what the box says. NWA challenger. AWA challenger. 
Larry, I hope I hope you get to see this video because he just held up your action figure in the pack with Ric Flair. Yeah, that's a classic. Mike's not kidding. Some of that stuff is very valuable on eBay and the market. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a classic. But the the story behind that was, you know, it was because we were supposed to do an invasion angle, and me and Rick have a big feud, this and that. But it never happened. But it did become the new world order scenario ten years down the road. It was the same idea. And Larry Dan, the man, is a mark, and he buys all that shit. Yeah, well, just, no, God bless you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, God, I mean. Well, let me ask you something. Um, we were we were talking. You've, you brought up a bunch tonight about you know contracts and and making money in the business and how you know the the narration of uh, how the business has evolved. I'm curious because you seem to be up on the current product from the last conversation we had when you were on the show previously. If you have any opinions on the big story from the last few months of Vince McMahon ordering his talent off of any third-party platform where they could make money independently. Oh, God. You know what? I I really don't know. You mean... Like well, I mean, making, if Vince has him under contract, he doesn't want him wrestling for anybody else. I'm not talking about I, I wrestling. Wouldn't. He he made him get shut down like YouTube channels and streaming services. Oh, yeah. and he's, a he's not talking about wrestling at all, Larry. Not working yeah. at all. Oh, you, you know, if, if oh, you God, host just, a, a cooking show on the side, you can't do that anymore. Any any third party where you can make money, wrestling, you know, besides wrestling, you you, you can't do it yeah. anymore. I have a you question know what? about that. I I really don't know anything about that, but to be honest with you, if I was Vince, I wouldn't want him to do it either because if you're a wrestler, all you you should be talking about on the social media is the business and how to make it make the most money, how to get yourself over and not do other things and some people knock other people and it gets out of hand, you know. Well, Larry, have we become too smart for that sort of stuff now? Well, I think what happened is everybody is so smart, but they don't care. They want to pretend. They want to believe for three hours, you know, that this is real. Well, because it, I mean, I, if it was I, done I right, it would be exciting. I remember when I saw my first match in person... Back in 1966 at the Philadelphia Arena, and I saw Bruno uh, getting, uh, you know, getting his hand raised over the executioner who was Killer Kowalski wearing a hood. Um, I remember, I believed that what I saw was a real fight between two guys, and one guy was winning and one guy was losing. Now, when Bruno, yeah. But now, Larry, they don't even make any pretense about it. They know it's bullshit, and they'll tell you it's bullshit. And and even to the point where Dan the man pointed something out that I wasn't aware of until I watched it, is uh, they're, they're going on their shows, and they're mocking their own shows. Well, I know. I mean, I, I, I never listen to really pod because they, they talk smart and I can see why Vince would say, shut up, you idiot. We're doing a business here. You know, <laughs> shit. 
Well, I mean, is there is there, um, is there a, a way to uh, is there a way for for these performers to be able to have a life? They're under contract. Let's back up from well, that. Well, the thing contract. is, they, they, they've got to realize the love of the business. They do have a life. Their life is a professional wrestler. They're under contract. And a lot of them are making a whole bunch of, I mean, a lot of money. And they don't know shit. So they should be thankful and do what they're told. <laughs> yeah. Because that's the thing, wrestling. It's not social media. It's wrestling. It's the business. Yeah. Go ahead, Danny. No, I mean he. I I can see that. I think it's it's uh, a little hit and miss in, in the digital media age where you have you know Twitter and YouTube and Facebook. It's something we've touched on before, and, and maybe I get your opinion on that too. Is where you've got ten different platforms besides TV that you can communicate with fans now. The idea of staying in character is gone, and I was wondering if, if you have any thoughts on how on. It, that is is the because you you touched on the the global market now um, earlier. If you think maybe the quality of the product suffered from how accessible the talent is today, well, I think I think the suspense for the fans has suffered. The production. I mean, if you watch the production of the WWE shows, you know, I mean, the production is awesome. I mean, my God, I mean, just to watch it is like an awesome production with the lights and the things and the booms and the, but then when the guys get in the ring, the quality of, you know, the match is, 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 is the, the, the psychology is, is lost. You know, the characters, everybody's the same. I'll watch a match and they're all doing big moves and kicking out. They're all flying off the top turnbuckle and kicking out, they're all running across into a foot, kicking out. I don't know who the good guy and the bad guy is. They're both punching and kicking Thank and you. jumping and yep. flying. And I don't, you know, so it's hard to get into it from the, the wrestler point of view because it's all the same. I don't know who's the bad guy or who's the good guy. But Larry, well, I have been the, saying All the fans have been months. saying that. I know. Oh, it's driving me nuts. And I, I make Dan crazy every week. <laughs> It, I, it's, every it's week, driving I, the, it's, it's driving the fans is, nuts. Oh, it's a, all I want to know is where is the believability, Mikey? We got Larry for about another five minutes. I'm going to let you close it out with him. Well, Larry, it's just been a pleasure as always. And you know, one thing that came up that you brought up was that Nick Bockwinkel feud and. uh Talk about an AWA legendary feud. I think it started in 86 with uh, the nunchucks attack. And, and like I said in your induction speech, Larry, the first time, I think the, the first and only time I saw someone get disqualified in a no DQ match was you. Because you got disqualified in a no DQ match for whacking Bockwinkle with nunchucks in the head, which I give you credit for. Um, but yeah, well, but he ran in to say yeah. about the Nick Bockwinkle feud because <laughs> <clears throat> well, the that, funny that was just was, a classic. Yeah, it, it, it was a classic time, and that was a time when Vern and the Crockett were trying to compete with Vince. And the only problem was, you know, Vince brought in the new characters from all over. The the problem with Vern was, I mean, he had Bockwinkle and Greg Gagne, but but Nick, who was great. 
has already been in the AWA for 20 years, you know? Yeah. So mm -hmm. it wasn't like a new thing. And Greg was there forever and some other guys. So one day I got the nunchucks and I used to carry them because I used to carry a gun, but then security came in. So you couldn't take a gun in the airport. So I put the nunchucks in the bag, but they were heavy ones and I'd use them to warm up and I'd be in the shower, you know, swinging them around when no one was around and loosening up before my match. And Vern Gagne walks by and sees him and goes, what the hell is that? <laughs> and I said, well, they're nunchucks, you know, Japanese uh, martial arts thing. Oh, it's a Pomoka now. Oh, very, that's what I'm talking about. And the next thing I know, he's got some guy from Japan. And I got a ninja, Mr. Go. <laughs> I didn't know he was brilliant. And then he got Nick Bockwinkle dressed with the whip and the hat and the jacket. Nick was Indiana Jones when the Indiana Jones <laughs> movies first started. And Greg Gagne was coming up out of the water with a knife in his mouth and a camouflage shirt. He was now Rambo. Oh, so nice. it was like, yeah, Vern was trying to create new characters out of characters that have been there for 20 years. You know, I'm going, oh, my God, I got to work with these guys. But then we'd bring in, you know, I'd have to work with guys like the Sergeant Slaughter or Harley Race or Nikita Koloff, guys we'd bring in. Because Nick was great, but he's already, you know, been there forever. You yeah. Know? Well, poor Vern. I mean, you know, he was going to die with that title. I, you know, I just I felt yeah. I felt so bad. for. I really I felt so bad for Vern because he just he was well past yeah. his Prime and the business went past him and it evolved and grew without him. And he just got kind of he, yeah. uh, like a side note, you know, a well, once yeah. I mean, great, it, it, yeah. yeah, he was a once changed great and, guy and he just yeah. became like he a was, side note to history. Yeah, he was great in his era and there was other guys great, but the eras changed, you know, we had the one era with the Hogan and the Macho and the Hot Rod and the the flair and this and then we have another new era now with the rock and the scene and the undertaker but now that's coming to an end so now we've got a new global era but they have no big stars they got to make some right. new stars because they got that a new will, era they'll but never be they'll never be a big star again they will never well, you will never you and i'll mark my words larry you'll yeah. never see a major star again and i'm going to tell you why because but, Vince like McMahon, the old uh, well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you why. Vince McMahon will never allow a single person to be bigger than the company. The company is the star, not the people. That's my contention. Yeah, that's your contention. Well, well, we'll 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 see. I mean, I'm, I'm, they got a couple guys. I'm trying to help them. It's a different era, but. They I just need to make new some new stars. It's time for new stars, you know. I'll tell you what, brother. I would love to be wrong. Believe me, when I tell you, I would love to be wrong. I I sell them, but you know it could happen. Well, me yeah. too. I mean, knowing Vince, I mean, I know how much Vince loves the business, and the WWE's become a great company. It takes care of its guys. It provides thousands of jobs. It does great charity work. And Vince loves it. I mean, Vince die in a chair in a gorilla because he has to be there. Yeah. But, you know, one day, and I'm, I'm sure he realizes it now, that, okay, we're in a new era. We need new stars. And he's trying to build them. I can see what they're doing, but they need some help. And we'll see what happens. 
Well, I'll tell you what, Larry. Thank you for joining us. Um, I owe you big time. I will call you tomorrow, and you and I will take care of that business. And uh, so, is there anything you want to promote? Any social media, a way to contact you, a way to book you for an event? <laughs> well, you know what? I mean, I'm not doing much because of the COVID stuff. Uh, but, uh, you know, I did a movie last year that this year they've been editing and putting together and putting the special effects in. It's almost done. They were going to shoot a couple more scenes to make the ending bigger in, in this December, next month. But they put it off till after January because of the virus at full sale here down the road. Yeah. But it should be out early next year. And it's a wrestling movie. It's called The Replaceables. And it's right. uh, there's a it's, it's about a group of wrestlers that save a town from aliens, and it could be really cool. And the thing I want to plug is oh, the record I made nineteen. <laughs> yeah, I made a record nineteen eighty called "Boo on Me," and uh, the I director remember. heard it and loved it, and it <laughs> <laughs> "Boo on Me." So it's going to be in the at the end of the movie when the credits go up. Oh my so, god. You, Remember you that can check that out now. The the re, the replaceables, you know, like the replaceables, the movie. You can Google it, and oh, there's some stuff about it. But it's uh, it's getting worked on and should be done right after the first of the year. Excellent, another classic to add to wrestlers versus zombies. Oh yeah, great one. Yeah, and great. I was great. Um, they told me my everything I did was great. I was like in the whole movie. Mike Messier, keep your eyes out for that one. Most definitely. Wrestlers versus the replaceables. Aliens. The replaceables. Larry, thanks for joining us. Uh, we um, we got to say good night to you. Um, well, Dan and man, gonna... Mike, thank you, Angelo, thank you. Thanks, you are Larry. quite welcome, brother. I'm going to call you tomorrow. I'm, I'm going to bug you some more. Always an honor, sir. Well, I'm, I'll be around. I'll probably be sitting by the pool getting a suntan because I'm in there Florida. You <laughs> Beautiful. Beautiful. <laughs> Take care, Larry. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. All that. right, guys. Thank Larry you. Larry Zabisco, everybody. Good night. That was great. That was great. Mikey. He well, remembered. He remembered that there was a mic that inducted him. <laughs> well, it's it's I I mean to be to be fair, I probably did a better speech than Bruno did because I'm a, a fan of Larry Zabisco, and like I said, the psychology of Larry Zabisco is off the charts. I mean, this is a guy who could get, uh, especially in the AWA days, uh, he could get the fans, 20,000, 15,000 fans, screaming at the top of his lungs, at their lungs, before Larry even made body contact, and that's yeah. how, how he had right. that longevity. Yeah, Larry was one of those guys who all he had to do was stick his face outside of the curtain. And he had instant heat. Dan, that was the second time we had Larry with us. Uh, what do you think? Uh, it's it's very obvious that he's well-traveled. And, I mean, the stories and the knowledge, and not just the knowledge, but the understanding. Like, he clearly gets the business. And, I mean, he's been everywhere. And he's one of the most important names of his generation. So it's always an honor to talk to him. Absolutely. Now... Tell everybody that Mike Messier is back. He is back home where he belongs. I hope this time, Daniel, that you do not run him off. And I, I, I was not, believe me when I tell you, I was not blind to what happened tonight. 
We lost Mikey twice. I think it was clear and deliberate sabotage on your part. I think you finagled with Mikey's technical uh, equipment. I don't know how you did it, but you are the smartest man in the room, so it's possible that you circumvented his microphone. Okay, well, let's let's not make it. All right. You jammed up his signal, but. Let's let's not make a parody of this. We we had a good show. Uh, Larry Zabisco, I didn't get to mention the 12-5 Trinity. December 5th uh, was Larry Zabisco's birthday. December 5th is my birthday. And December 5th is Walt Disney's birthday. And also, December 5th is Repealment Day, the day that alcohol was made legal again. And I'm sure that some of you guys on this panel appreciate that. But December 5th is the day that alcohol was made legal again. And uh, December 5th is the day that Nelson Mandela passed away. It's also Dynamite Day. So, so. Damn. Larry, Interesting. Disney, Larry Zbysko and Mike. Yes. Interesting stuff. So, Dan, are you still the smartest guy in the room? Well, I mean, you know, we, we, uh, <laughs> we, we, there, there's, there's room I'm for learning. I'm busting your chops. I'm busting. No, Mikey, it's great to have you back. I am, well, of course, those, you know, those shops are be, getting... being facetious and playing with you guys, but I, I, I love having Mikey back. Um, because he always asks the questions that you never expect anybody to ask. That's Mike Messier's job. <laughs> well, so uh, I try to I try to dig beneath. Go ahead, Mikey. Go. Ahead. I just I try to dig dig beneath because the thing is we we have these guests and a lot of them you know we we try to I, I at least I try to ask questions that maybe are a little bit different because I think that for a lot of rabid wrestling fans out there you know there's so many. There's a lot of interviews, let's face it, beyond this show. Uh, with some of these wrestlers, they do a lot of interviews. So I think asking some of these uh, deep dive questions to get kind of into the nooks and crannies of their careers, you yeah. get some things that otherwise may not come to surface. That's the point of and those And I'm glad you questions. said that because I think it's really important. One of the things that Dan and I have been doing a lot lately, in fact, the last five, six, probably about the last five months, well, at least four, four months for sure anyway, um, we haven't been asking, I don't think maybe we asked a handful of wrestling questions. If we asked that many, Dan, uh, we've been really, um, kind of veering away from asking, you know, fanboy questions. And we haven't really talked a lot about matches at all. Right. Um, and, and we like it that way. Um, so Mikey brings a different perspective, which is good, which is fresh and new and needed. But I still think, however, that people who watch this show are more impressed by the person behind the character than the character. And we will continue to talk to them as people and not wrestling characters. Speaking of which I spoke to Lanny Papo yesterday. There's a very good chance Lanny may be coming back on. He just Excellent. moved to Ecuador, and he, and that's that's a shoot. He moved to Ecuador. Ecuador. Wow. And yeah, and I mean he spent a pretty penny on this place, brother. Let me tell you, beautiful. Holy shit. Um, 
And uh, he's got the, you know, sun and the beach and the villa and the whole bit. So God bless Lanny Poffo. Well, good for um, him. Yeah. So what's going on, Dan, in the world of Dan the Man? Uh, I mean, doing the uh, doing the show, same old shit. A lot of a uh, lot of uh, outside activity. <coughs> Excuse me. He, the uh, uh, COVID's kept kept us very busy. So, unfortunately, oh, yeah, we're going to talk it doesn't, a lot it doesn't show COVID. any signs of slowing down. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. Mikey, how's the how's the COVID affected you and your uh, your your filmmaking and uh, uh, stuff like that? Well, yeah, it's a great point, Angelo, and I feel for everyone at Dan's workplace too, and and everyone in the Northeast and in Virginia. Um, you know, for me, I actually was acting in a movie about a month ago. A friend of mine, uh, Tom Danucci, and uh, he put together a film, and, and Peter Green, who was in The Mask in Pulp Fiction, he was Zed. Uh, Zed is dead. That's uh, Peter Green is the actor who played Zed. So he was in this film. And uh, I had a shootout with Peter Green uh, as characters, of course. And uh, a gentleman who was on The Sopranos, uh, who played uh, the uh, love interest of Carmela, not Tony, but, but Carmela had a love interest for a couple of years. Uh, and I played a, a scene with him. So um, oddly enough, things are still moving forward. I actually did meet a Wrestling with the Future alumni in person on Saturday night. I don't know if you caught that on my YouTube channel, but an alumnist from the show, I'm in person and did a little video with him, Sam Houston. Uh, he was passing oh, through wonderful. Florida and we met up at a restaurant and we Good. talked shop and Sam's a real nice guy. And I'll, I'll say this, Sam, Sam Houston looks probably 20 years younger than he is. He's, he's uh, still got that baby face and, you know, he's still, oh, yeah. still a Texas uh, bred and all that and a real nice oh, guy. Yeah. Yeah, Sam's a great guy. He's actually, he's coming back on to talk to Sam. Uh, Sam's been, I don't know, for people who don't know, Sam's actually been uh, rehabbing houses for people. Mm-hmm. He's doing yeah. a lot of uh, rehab. Did he talk to you about that, Mike? He's doing his rehab and his furniture work. He's doing a lot of woodworking. Well, we did talk about that. We also talked and we agreed upon that I would write a pilot of uh, Sam. He froze up. Mikey froze up. Of course, but I will write the 20 or 30 page script for Sam uh, because Sam's working on a book. And so, uh, you know, if any producers out there want to get involved, Sam Houston has some life stories, but not like you, like you point out, Angelo, not just wrestling, but life. Um, So he's a very fascinating guy and and kind of a guy, if you think about it, you know, same thing that when you had Lanny Poffo on, I said, you know what? I think the WWF, for all their glory in the mid-80s, they missed out on two sets of brothers. They could have done the same storyline or similar storylines. Randy Savage and Lanny Poffo and Jake Roberts and Sam Houston, the corrupt older brother, uh, manipulates and influences the naive, baby-faced younger brother. They could have done both sets of brothers like that, or one of the sets of brothers. Yeah. And that would have been box office gold. And they just don't do things that they should do sometimes. Yeah. And that's always, that's, that's always the slippery slope when you deal with brother teams and wrestling. I mean, we saw it with Owen and Brett. We saw it with, uh, the Irwin brothers way, way back in my day. Scott um, Hogg and wild bill. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, 
that's that's always been the thing, Dan. Like, what to do with brother teams, you know? Well, you you mentioned Sam Houston. Correct me if I'm wrong. Wasn't hit, uh, the Sam Houston baby doll story one of the confirmed episodes of the of the upcoming season in the Dark Side of the Ring? I could have sworn yes. I saw that on the on the list. Uh, you you are correct, sir. Because Sam actually and I spoke before he did that, and uh, he did do that. So Sam was interviewed uh, for the Dark Side of the Ring. I'm not sure if it's about Sam and Baby Doll or the entire Sam Houston, Jake Roberts, Rock and Robin uh, trilogy, and, and now Sam's daughter, uh, Baby Baby Doll, and Sam's daughter is a wrestler now too. So yeah, she's been um, on the show, Mikey. I'm not sure. Uh, n- yep, exactly. So I'm not Her sure exactly. Uh, Michaela. Right. Yeah. Very pretty uh, she, girl and very good wrest- wrestler. Yeah. She very wrestles talented. under the name, uh, Samantha star. Correct. Uh, her name's, uh, Michaela Smith. Um, pretty girl, very smart. Uh, she got her shit together. And, uh, I think I she's got a Dan, career. If she keeps her eyes open and her mouth shut, I think she's got a career. You know, correct. So, uh, very good. Yeah. Yeah. She's, she's very talented young lady. She was actually on here with Nicola. Um, how long ago was that Dan? Um, they were, they were I'm trying to think cause they were on one of the, the ladies of wrestling call-in shows. And then we had right around when I started that, when I joined the program, we did the episode with just the two of them. Oh, that's right. That was that was you, right? Yep. That, yep. That was like back in, I guess, what m- late March, early April, somewhere in there. Um. Well, you know what? I'm going to say April on that one. Probably April. Yeah, that sound, April sounds about right. Yeah, I don't think I know it wasn't March, and I'll tell you why I know. Because let's see, Jeff passed away February 29th. Yes. March was a blur because I didn't. I was in a, in a stupor for a month after that. Right. And I didn't get my bearings again till probably April. And I remember baby doll and Michaela were one of, if not the first guest after Jeff. And I believe that because we talked about that because she she had found out that Jeff passed away. By watching the, the tribute show that we did, right, um, and th- and that took her by surprise. But and we actually talked about Jeff on that show a little bit. But yeah, that was uh, yeah, that was April. Sure was. Uh, in fact, latter part of April. Yeah, years. Uh, for for as as much as twenty twenty is thrown at us, a year does seem to be flying by. Uh, and yeah, and I. Uh, just a, a shout out to my, <laughs> it's been rough. I lost a cousin this week too. Mm, sorry to hear that. that. Yeah. And, uh, he's, uh, his viewing is tomorrow night. So my wife and I are going to that and, uh, just off, awful, awful. He would have been 60 on Thanksgiving day. Oh, that's wow. terrible. It's been a horrible, horrible year all around. I so agree with that. On that note, we will not end. We are going to end on a happy note. I promise you. So let me tell you what our happy note is. Come January, we are including more news and information. We have uh, pretty well exhausted the realm of wrestling. 
Because there's just nothing new and exciting to talk about. There just isn't. I'm sorry. Um, so I have to make a decision as to whether we're going to continue to talk about wrestling or uh, just, you know, basically an hour away, pay homage and tribute to the stars that still remain that are alive because they are leaving us quickly. They are leaving us quickly. They're in their 60s and 70s and 80s, a lot of them in the 70s and 80s now, uh, and they're just not around. Yeah. So we have to find a way to, to talk about other things. So I think we're going to talk more about news, very little, little politics, but very little if I can help it, current events. We're going to do a lot more conspiracy stuff. We are going to have a show on COVID because I got some stuff to say about that. Um, and uh, and Vince Russo will be back. Good old Vince. Yeah. Vince will be back. Uh, we're going to explore the rabbit hole. And I think that's we're going to actually do another show um, that explores just, just that. The... Uh, the elusive uh, um, conspiracy rabbit hole mm. that seems to always have more questions than answers. <laughs> right, Dan? Always. Absolutely. So, what's going on in the world of MikeMessier.com? Well, I appreciate you asking that, Angelo. Um, you know, for me, I just wrapped up the Avalonia Festival. The live event was about a week and a half ago. So that was very exciting. I've been doing a series of interviews with people in the uh, acting and entertainment world. If you've ever seen the Geico commercials or the uh, the gentleman that was in the Brothers McMullen, uh, Michael yeah, McMullen. I actually watched that interview. He's uh, he's an interesting character. Yeah, he's, he's a cool dude. Character. What is his, his real name? Michael McGlone is his real name. Michael, Michael McGlone. He's one of those guys that you know his face, you know his voice. But few people ever really get to know his name. Well, he's working on changing that because he's got his own passion project called Kenny the Gun. So he's been doing uh, YouTube videos in character, a series, as Kenny. And Kenny's a cop with a stripper girlfriend. And, uh, <laughs> oh, he's there pitched, you go. Right. So he's, <laughs> he's pitching Kenny as hard as he can push it. And, uh, you know, Michael's right there in the middle of Los Angeles. And like I said, he was... Brothers McMullen. If you ever saw the Brothers McMullen or She's the One, he's right there with Edward Burns as the brother. Um, well, I'll tell you, Mikey, uh, since since you've been gone, we have a uh, a new addition to the podcast. He's become a very good friend of the show. He's a pretty influential Hollywood hitter named Mr. Stephen Plim. Okay. And Mr. Plim is, the, uh, is a manager, an agent. Uh, he's a talent broker, and he uh, he's the guy who brought Tiny Tim to the world. Tiptoes well, through Steve, the How about uh, it, Dan? Oh, yeah. No, and, and the talks we have with, with Stephen Plim are always entertaining and eye-opening, for lack of a better word. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And joining us also in the early part of 2021 will be Lydia Cornell. Now, if you don't know that name, you should. She was one of the stars of a TV show with Ted Knight called Too Close for Comfort. 
that starred Jim J. Bullock and Ted Knight and Lydia Cornell. And uh, if you're under the age of 40, you probably don't know the show. I know the show. It's Oh, I'm sure you do, Mikey. It's a great show. Close for comfort. And uh, she is uh, Lydia Cornell is an author, a playwright, an activist, an actress. And she will be with us in the early part of 2021. Angela, was she the wife or one of the daughters? She was the blonde haired daughter, Mike. Oh, my goodness. Wow. She was smoking hot. Yes. Yeah. She was up there with uh, Suzanne Summers, to be honest with you. She was a real uh, they bombshell. They actually resembled each other, believe it or not. They they kind of did. They favored each other. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, well, she was very favored. Trust me. <laughs> exactly. <I might. laughs> so, before we uh, we scoot out of here, Dan, yes, sir. let's have a word from our sponsor. Okay, well, tonight we talked to uh, Larry Zabisco, the living legend, and uh, with our sponsor, you can be your own legend, uh, at least in your own mind anyway, and our sponsors uh, are Manscaped.com. Manscaped.com is the leading producer and supplier of man-trimming products. Their current package is the Lawnmower 3.0, includes a, a deodorant, a refreshing spray, leather handbag, uh, it's, uh, with, you can use promo code Wrestling Future for a 20% discount. They're also currently pushing what's called the Weed Whacker, which is a nose and ear trimmer that's top rated. Lawnmower 3.0, manscaped.com. Like I said, use promo code Wrestling Future for 20% off your purchase. And uh, that is uh, Wrestling Future and manscaped.com. Your balls your thank ball. you. Well, thank you. And so will we. On that note, for Dan the Man Sebastiano, for Mr. Mike, the movie maker Messier, for Angelo DiCipio, that's me. We'll see you next time on Wrestling with the Future. Take care, everybody. Happy wrestling.